the thing is, as soon as you start actually tabulating in an objective manner the various different costs that you are imposing on society when you lock down whole, whole healthy populations, you very quickly get to realizing that the, the amount of benefit that you would need from a lockdown is woefully above the, any plausible benefit that lockdowns could be providing in a world with COVID. Right, COVID was just not killing enough people, right? And so it just doesn't make sense to respond to it with a lockdown that has so many costs. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro. With me is the incomparable Ricky Allpark. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Yes. Very excited about another guest today. Yep, as uh, am I. But we are doing a little series over the next little while, not in succession, because uh, we, we desperately want to put COVID to bed because we are sure a lot of you do too. And perhaps the best way of doing that is to, is to consult just a, just a few experts, some, some outspoken uh, and, and dangerous-minded people uh, on the subject, and then maybe we can put it to bed. What do you reckon? Yes, yeah, I'm a big fan of that. And uh, our first guest is Gigi Foster, who some of you in Australia might uh, know well from a few different media appearances she's made over the past couple of years in relation to uh, COVID policy and lockdowns. Fantastic. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Gigi Foster is a professor with the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales. She has a Bachelor from Yale University in Ethics, Politics and Economics, a PhD in Economics from the University of Maryland. Uh, she was named 2019 Young Economist of the Year uh, by the Economic Society of Australia, and she's made regular uh, media appearances, including co-hosting The Economist's a National Economics Program and podcast series on the ABC uh, Radio National. She has authored more than 25 scholarly works and co-authored the book with Paul Freitch. Uh, an Economic Theory of Greed, Love, Groups and Networks in 2013, and most recently, The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why and What to Do Next. Welcome, Gigi. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. There's a hot war raging in Ukraine, and I have to ask you, are you concerned uh, about the possible COVID-19 outbreaks that could be happening in the Ukraine right now? <laughs> Is that a serious question? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, that, that question by itself, right, shows you the degree to which we have completely lost our compass. Um, so I, I, I read this on on, uh, on the ABC. It, and I, I should have just read out their actual headline, which was, Fresh COVID-19 outbreaks likely in Ukraine, health uh, with Dr. Norman Swan. So they're covering all the hot topics there. Um <laughs> But perhaps we'll get that to that. You just can't make it up. You can't make it up. I mean, I was I was thinking earlier uh, in the whole saga, probably around mid 2020, that if if COVID had happened to be on the scene and been tested for, and all this information we had, and it had all been happening in like 1946, when all these returned servicemen had just come back from you know putting themselves in grave danger and were starting to be able to actually live freely again with their families. You know, they would have laughed this off. They would have thought, you know, this is just whatever. You know, this is nothing compared to the actual mortal danger that they've been facing. And so now, obviously, you know, we, we still have this residual COVID obsession. But really what's happening with the Ukraine is mainly that the, the narrative is shifting. And I think some of the 
politicians who see the writing on the wall are grabbing the Ukraine war as an opportunity to try to memory hold the last two years and their complicity in visiting this damage upon the, the population of the world. And, and that's a real frustration for me. And I think for a lot of people in the COVID resistance you know, here in Australia and overseas, because, you know, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for people to wake up from this obsessive period and to have a reckoning of what really has happened and a, and a putting on the table of the pain and some responsibility and some trials some jail time for at least some people and for for the entire world to go prancing after the Ukraine war. I mean, awful as it is, obviously, but but leaving the COVID stuff behind in, in such a such a stampede that may cause us to forget that that's that's very frustrating for me. And I, I do hope that we return to a reckoning at some point. Well, you've almost said everything I, I wanted you to say. So, which is good. So, and there was no there was no brown paper bag needed. It was just a set of, but, but I would say, well, perhaps we'll we'll, we'll get into some of the finer detail here. Let's start with uh, your your book, which uh, we're both all across. Now, in your book, uh, the Great COVID Panic, you, you introduce three characters: the Jane, Jasmine, and James. Yep. And uh, you outlined that these are three possible reactions to the pandemic, uh, or different camps, perhaps. We've got our Janes, which uh, you know, for lack of a better term, the COVID bedwetters. Uh, we've got, um, uh, you know, they love the government directions and they dislike people who don't follow the rules. We've got our Jasmines. They're the skeptics and the critical thinkers, perhaps. And then you've got the Jameses, the, the, the opportunists. These, they could be politicians or business people that, that have profited. So perhaps you could outline these archetypes for our listeners and, and maybe give us some ideas on what the proportion of, the, of maybe at least Australia you think are in, in these camps. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it is difficult to estimate the numbers, but I do think at the beginning of um, the pandemic in March 2020, probably around 90% of people were Janes. Um, they, you know, very, very fearful, seeing all the images from overseas, from Italy, from New York City, from, from China, of course, these people dropping dead in the street, supposedly. And they were really just overcome by their fear and started themselves to demand of their politicians to protect them from this threat. And that was the beginning of the end for the politicians' uh, ability to easily run a line that COVID wasn't so serious. Because even before mid-2020, mid-March 2020, some politicians, even in Australia, were speaking about COVID in sensible terms. They were saying, look, you know, it looks like a nasty flu. If you're older, you should be careful. But if you're young, you're probably going to be fine, right? So pretty sensible stuff. And with the idea that we should be targeted, uh, have targeted protection for people who are actually vulnerable to this virus. And we knew from the data then even that it was mainly the elderly and, and the, the older groups and those who were immunocompromised who were facing the most significant threats. That's not changed for the last two years. Um, and instead of having that targeted protection, we've had this massive, you know, one size fits all policy sequence, starting with lockdowns and now ending up with vaccine mandates. And, and none of it has been proportionate, but it was requested by the Janes of the world, including in Australia. So it was that pressure from their populations that really caused, I think, a lot of politicians to cave in. And that was their undoing. I mean, they, they should have been responsible to their people People, it's not always true that what the people want in a moment that's full of emotion is actually good for them. I mean, we might think the same thing about World War I then, you know, should all the nations have rushed off to war then and, and had these catastrophic damages, uh, deaths, you know, and, and dismemberments and maimings because everybody was super crash hot patriotic and thought they would win easily. If, if a politician had truly cared about the well-being of his population at that time, he would not have been, uh, you know, so bullish on war. 
So, uh, you know, so, so it is, I think, a failure of our politicians and a, and a betrayal of their people to have caved into that political pressure at that time and not seen the damage that, that would cause. And of course, once we started in Australia, particularly, it was very difficult for politicians to extract themselves from that narrative of I am protecting you from COVID because we are an island nation. We were able to close our borders. And that makes it look as though, you know, our actions, quote unquote, are keeping the virus out, quote unquote, and we are pure, quote unquote, right? It's all this, this imagery that people were able to sort of just take in and say, oh yeah, okay, well that sort of seems to make sense on the surface of it. So we'll continue to make these sacrifices for this, this cause of somehow defeating the threat of COVID. And in the meantime, uh, you know, of course, more incredible losses, which is of course, one of the things we document in our book, The Great COVID Panic. So Jane was indeed the fearful one who put the pressure on the politicians initially and ended up later in the panic, often being the vigilantes who were going up to people on the street and saying, you don't have a mask on or, you know, you're not socially distancing or whatever it is, right? This daubing in behavior that's mm, very un-Australian yeah, yeah. can come out on people. Horrible. So that's the first character. Um, the second character, as you mentioned, was Jasmine. So that's basically us uh, now. And at the time in March 2020, what fraction of people were Jasmine's? Gosh, oh, I mean two or three percent maybe uh, it was a very small percentage of us who were sort of sanity checking and, and kept sanity checking and kept thinking okay no it's the rest of the world that's going mad not us even into april may june right a lot of people just got swept up at some point in there and started following the narrative but by now i think you know very large numbers of people over the last year or so have been waking up it doesn't happen quickly it happens gradually it happens one by one as charles mckay says um sociologist who says men go mad in crowds but they come back to their senses only slowly one by one and and that has been happening but because it's been a year or so of people finally realizing that this is madness, we now, I think, have a pretty chunky number of a fraction of Jasmines in Australia. I don't know, maybe 15%, something like that, I'd like to think. And then, of course, the other group is the James. And the James is, uh, is kind of the typical model of humanity that a lot of economists use in their theories. Right? He's the guy who kind of looks around at what he's facing in terms of resources and opportunities and tries to make decisions that will benefit him. That's it. He's the opportunist. And, you know, Australia is full of them uh, in normal times. Now, some of them would have gotten bamboozled by this and become really Janes in that earlier period. But some of them who may initially have gone in for that fear sort of flipped out of it and became more of the opportunist rather than the skeptic later on. And these are the people who, for example, saw that it was going to be very profitable to switch into producing personal protective equipment or producing, um, let's see, vaccines or, uh, or other kinds of, you know, internet services that people would need when they're locked in their homes, whatever it was, whatever the opportunity was. And this could be a government person, government bureaucrat who found it to be uh, good for his or her career and, you know, status and um, general, you know, power level to uh, collude, you know, to have contracts given to various different companies that seemed to be providing this equipment or protection of some sort that the politician could then uh, sell to the population as part of the protection that he or she had provided. And we even had people, I mean, Brett Sutton was a national sex symbol for a while. I mean, it's it was serious <laughs> power and status, right? That we're there talking were about. bumper stickers, I believe, yes. that said, uh, Slutton for Sutton. Yeah, I believe. <laughs> That's so. it, exactly, right? 
I mean, it just shows you, right? I mean, I'm sure that more than one person also fell in a similar way for many of the autocrats of history, right? I mean, you know, I hate to say Hitler. I mean, I'm not, I'm not comparing Fred Sutton to Hitler, but, mm. you know, people who have led really autocratically and just been seeming to be very, very powerful, that's going to, you know, make women swoon. It just does. So, yeah, that's happened. And so, you know, those Jameses are the ones who have kind of profited during this period. And now I think, you know, if we have obviously the, the later stages of the of the various protection mechanisms, including vaccines, and we're still going to see some of that. But the people who are seeing the writing on the wall, as I was saying before, the people who are seeing that the COVID narrative is kind of crumbling overseas, the smart ones will be now trying to duck away quickly into the shadows and keep as money as much of their winnings as they can. Right. And and, you know, hope that it all kind of goes away because they've just made a killing. So. Mm. Would you would you put uh, people that, that that love to work from home in that James's camp as well? Because I seem to know a lot of people who sort of have gone along with all the restrictions because they just love not having to go into the office and, you know, they get more time at home. And I mean, that's sort of taking uh, advantage of the opportunity in a way like. Yeah, I mean, in a sense that anybody who has had a silver lining from this period, you could then, I suppose, say has taken advantage of an opportunity. But really, when I when we use the term James, we're really thinking of someone who has capitalized big time uh, for, for a group, you know, for a whole business. Zoom or, or something. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the company yeah. Zoom. That's Which right. Which we're yeah. using right now. Yeah, we are indeed. And, and indeed <laughs> my book is on Amazon, right? So, I mean, it's, it's very hard to yeah. get away from I, I just it's hate company, all these, right? these autocrats. So I hate them. <laughs> look, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. And it's so hypocritical, right? And so this is one of the reasons why actually we, we have a blog up on my publisher's website, the Brownstone Institute, um, called The Five Labors of a Re-Enlightenment, which is basically a, a kind of call to arms of what can we do now? One of the things is to blacklist some of these companies and groups that have behaved like James's during mm. this period, including some scientific journals, by the way, you know, The Lancet, for example, um, and to instead start new networks and new companies, new ways of providing the services and goods that that used to be provided by these institutions that have been so badly tainted by their involvement during the COVID saga. Um, and so that that's actually something that just takes a lot of time to build, right? So, I mean, I've, I've spoken with my publisher, who's basically a one-man show in the U.S. The Brownstone Institute is basically Jeffrey Tucker, and he just doesn't have the capacity to liaise with wholesalers here in Australia who could then get it to bookstores and whatnot, but he can get on Amazon easily, right? And so, and he can send me shipments of the book. So I've got a stash here. I've, I've persuaded somebody to have a stash in Brisbane, and we can send out a few copies here and there, but we just don't have the scale. We don't, you know, it's a it's a tiny little mom and pop kind of business, basically, right? Um, other than the availability of the book on Amazon, so it's hard to escape these these uh, these big companies and these these big Jameses. Yeah, mm, yeah. Well, before we drill down into some more of the details, um, it, it's been two years since the start of the pandemic, and uh, based on the data we have now. Uh, what's what's your current view on the effectiveness of lockdowns? Has your view changed over the last two years? No, my view has not changed. Um, I, my view was always that they were on net going to be ridiculously costly, um, that there might be some benefit, but that the benefit would be vastly outweighed by the costs. And so, in fact, you may know that in uh, as, as late as August 2020, we still did not have 
a cost-benefit analysis from the governments that were you know, putting in place these draconian restrictions. And as an economist, that's what I expected. I expected there to be a defense on a cost-benefit basis of such a draconian restriction. And so I provided kind of a proof of concept initial draft cost-benefit analysis to the Victorian Parliament in August 2020. I was invited to speak there uh, by David Limbrook. And um, you know, I, it was like four pages. I was hoping that it would be the start of, you know, okay, this is how we should do this. You know, I'm naively thinking that they just didn't know how. <laughs> right. There's just no incentive to provide it because the thing is, as soon as you start actually tabulating in an objective manner the various different costs that you are imposing on society when you lock down whole, whole healthy populations, you very quickly get to realizing that the the amount of benefit that you would need from a lockdown is woefully above the any plausible benefit that lockdowns could be providing in a world with COVID, right? COVID was just not killing enough people, right? And so it just doesn't make sense to respond to it with a lockdown that has so many costs. Um, and yet people people on the street were taken in by these interesting kinds of arguments and metaphors. Some metaphors that were used during that time really blew me away. Like the one you may remember is, um, you know, when you're in an avalanche on a snowy mountain, you, uh, you know, you don't think, oh gosh, should we, or should we not get out of the way? You just get out of the way. Right? So remember exotic. that? Yeah. Well, you think about it from an In Australia as well. Like it's so exotic. Like, we, 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 we live, it's hot as the sun here. And we're like, yeah, I would, I avalanche. It's Definitely. 15 times more you know. scary. I know, but but the problem with that metaphor and with any you know historical analogy or other metaphor that's just inappropriate is that it really sticks in people's minds. Now, why is the 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 that kind of analogy or that kind of metaphor inappropriate? First of all, you have the idea that there is going to be an avalanche, right? So that's implanted mm. into your brain with that metaphor. Well, mm. was there really going to be an avalanche? I mean, when I did my analysis in August 2020, I assumed very generously that lockdowns might have prevented 10,000 deaths. As it turns out, I think in hindsight, that was a great, huge overestimate, but that's what I assumed at the time because I needed to come up with some number to use as the benefits that lockdowns were going to be providing. Now, in hindsight now, you know, we've seen data from overseas now, we've got two years worth of information. Lockdowns do not save that many people. In fact, if anything, they just delay deaths a bit for a few months. That's basically how it works, right? Um, and so you're not gaining anything in terms of the COVID deaths and you are, you know, you are gaining a little bit in terms of traffic fatalities for for example, um, bar fights that don't happen as much because people aren't going to pubs, right? There's a, there's a few categories. You don't lose people on the table who would have had elective surgery had it not been for lockdowns because some elective surgeries sadly do end in death. So there's a few weird categories like that where you do gain life for a few months or whatnot. But, you know, in terms of the, the costs, right, it's just completely out of the ballpark. Like the costs are so much greater than those small benefits. So, so that's the first error in that metaphor is that there wasn't going to be an avalanche. The second error is that lockdowns are a means of getting out of the way, right? So, well, what is a lockdown? A lockdown is, you know, sort of predicated on this very superficial assumption that you can simply lock people away into their homes and prevent them from breathing on each other and thereby prevent transmission of a virus. Now, if you lock people into their homes, they're sharing air with the rest of their family members. They have to go to the grocery store. They, they have to, you know, occasionally get a repairman in to fix the Netflix or whatever, right? And so it's not like you're really fully isolating them, right? We live in this interdependent economy now. And so you're, you're really not able to fully isolate people. And there are inevitably going to be these little ways that people can interact with each other. And what about 
about those essential workers, so-called, right? Everybody who's inessential, supposedly, you know, just doesn't matter about them. But the essential ones, they had to keep going out of the house and doing their jobs. They're encountering other people, too. So this whole idea that lockdowns were really going to effectively, uh, you know, prevent the transmission of a respiratory virus was a, a bit of an oversell. And finally, of course, the metaphor contains this idea that when, that when you get out of the way, there is a safe spot kind of on the side of the avalanche where you can stand. In fact, lockdowns were the equivalent of jumping into a, a pit infested with snakes, right? It was not a safe spot, <laughs> right? And, and we kind of knew that as well beforehand. I mean, lockdowns were not part of the pandemic management plans that we had in place before March 2020 for a virus like COVID. It was just not something that was considered because they were so costly. And now we're finally getting more people to wake up and realize this. We're getting the academic articles uh, finally seeing the light of day that actually estimate these, these costs and show how badly we got it wrong. Are you surprised that no one, uh, no opposition governments have done their own cost benefit analysis? Not really, because the opposition governments are themselves generally controlled by the big parties. So I think I think liberal and labor both are complicit in this uh, in this tragedy that we've seen. And so where I see the challenge uh, to COVID policies coming from is mainly the tiny little parties that are growing up like little, you know, new shoots all over Australia now, right? There's half a dozen of them. I don't even remember all their names, but there's lots of them that, that are happening because people are just so disenchanted with both of the major parties. And, uh, you know, what is Labour going to do? Come up with a CBA that says lockdowns were bad. And then that looks pretty bad for Dan Andrews, right? So, and, and Mark McGowan. So yeah, maybe SCOMO is liberal, but they they both kind of got, you know, blood on their hands. So it's it's really not politically feasible for them to go back and, and actually admit that this was so I'm doing a cost benefit analysis and enhancement of what I presented in August. Uh, I'm still working on it. I've got 100 over 100 pages now, and, and hopefully that'll be released reasonably soon. Um, I'm on sabbatical at the moment, so it's one of my big jobs for uh, for my sabbatical. Um, but that's I, I think it has to come from an independent voice like myself or, or other academics. There is also another paper that was published by Martin Lally. Uh, using a more traditional cost-benefit analysis methodology, I use a, a human well-being-based one, where I calculate costs and benefits in terms of human welfare. Um, he uses basically just the more standard methodology, money and GDP and things. Uh, but that got published in the Monash Bioethics Review, so that's actually coming out. Thank goodness. Mm. Well, you you mentioned uh, well-being there. Uh, you spend some time in the book talking about the measurable pros and cons of lockdowns using a metric called uh, Welby's. Uh, so, for example, uh, a school closure resulting uh, in loss of learning and socialization will uh, reduce your Welby's, uh, whereas um, if you have a certain amount of increased social interaction, you'll gain some Welby's. So can you explain this metric and how you use it to assess the effectiveness of uh, lockdowns and other COVID measures? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, some of your listeners may be surprised at an economist caring about human well-being <laughs> instead of money, right? Um, but this is actually the the secret, um, you know, that's not known very much about economists. We try to maximize human welfare, and the problem is always how to measure that human welfare. So, you know, GDP per capita is often something we target, not because GDP per se matters, but because when you have higher GDP per capita, you generally have higher quality of life. You have higher human longevity, you have higher happiness, you have just you know more thriving, more human flourishing, and that's what we're after. So the Welby is a new currency that was just serendipitously developed by my co-author, Paul Freiders, on the Great COVID Panic and his team at the London School of Economics in late 2019. Um, and 
it's essentially built on a question which is in most social science survey, surveys around the world, which is overall, how satisfied are you with your life nowadays? Or a question that's similar to that, right? So it's about life satisfaction. So the respondents are asked to uh, to sort of agree, disagree, or have a have a amount of satisfaction that they report on a zero to ten scale. And in a country like Australia or another kind of you know generally developed Western country, you tend to have a, an answer of about an eight for a healthy person, and you know that's that can have a you know some variation around it, but you know roughly an eight. And if you were to ask yourself, you know, what would your uh, ranking be? I'm usually about a nine, um, you know, pretty much all the time, pretty stable. If you have like a serious illness, you know, you might be down to a six or whatever. Now, the amount or the, the response level that is associated with indifference between living and dying has been found to be about a two. So one well-be is one of a unit increment on this zero to 10 scale uh, for one person, right? Live for one year. So if you then want to kind of work out, well, what is uh, a whole life lived for a year, a healthy life lived for a year, right? Well, that would be basically your value of eight, which is the healthy life, minus the value of two, which is indifferent between life and death. So that's six lived for a year, right? And so using that kind of logic and, and evidence based on the you know hundreds and hundreds of studies that have been done on this life satisfaction question over you know decades in the social science literature, we can then translate well-bees to a currency that we already use in health economics a lot called the quality, the quality adjusted life year. And this currency, a lot of Australians don't know this, but it's used to make determinations about what drugs we're going to buy, what interventions we're going to buy for the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, right? And so Australia in normal times, non-COVID times, has been shown to be willing to pay about $50,000 per quality. That's, you know, a, a good quality, healthy life year, right? And, you know, if, if an intervention or a drug costs more than that, right, if, if a drug that's providing one additional quality to the person who takes it costs more than $50,000, generally speaking, it won't be put on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme list. So that tells you what the social level of willingness to pay for human welfare kind of is, right, in dollar figures. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that that's the same amount that you and I would be willing to pay for our own life to be, you know, extended by one healthy year. For example, of course, the individual would pay more. And the difference between that amount that we would pay, which probably be, I don't know, whatever, depending on your income, right, a lot more than $50,000, and what the social willingness to pay is, is only there. That difference only exists because we just haven't gotten rich enough to close that gap, right? And so, you know, if if we keep gaining GDP per capita, maybe one day we'll be able to afford to spend, you know, a million dollars for a quality. But at the moment, you know, around COVID time, it was $50,000 a quality. So then that gives you, once you have that translation from wellbees to qualities to dollars, that gives you three different currencies which are all interchangeable, you can translate from one to the other, in which you can denominate both the benefits and the costs of a policy like lockdowns. And that's what I did in August 2020. That's what I'm working on now. It's There are so many categories of costs that it takes a long time, and you have to come up with a counterfactual, right? What would have happened if we hadn't had the lockdowns? Um, 
And the Welby is particularly useful in uh, quantifying the kinds of costs which really don't show up in a lot of traditional economic statistics like GDP, like unemployment or, you know, some other kind of statistic, the exchange rate or whatever, because they are just about human suffering, which is done silently and, and quietly with no big hoo-ha or survey about it, other than uh, sometimes life satisfaction surveys, right, which can capture this. So we know from uh, data in the UK and also from Australia that when you lock down a population, you basically take away about a half a point on that satisfaction scale from that population for every person in that population who's locked down, right? And so if you take that as the beginning of your ability to quantify what lockdowns do to people in terms of their mental health, their suffering, their stress, you know, it's captured in their quality of life, then you're cooking with gas. Then you can add up all of these, these parts of the, the, the cost, right? All these various little tiny sufferings, they make a one huge big amount of suffering just in the short run, just because of the lockdown. And then of course you have many other categories of costs which are happening both at that time and uh, into the future. So Gigi, just to be clear, in non-COVID times, or let's say in, in the year of our Lord, 2018, would, would, would we be doing similar calculations for anything from, you know, how fast we should be going on our roads or what we should be, do you know what I mean? Like, isn't this the kind of analysis that you would expect that to, for us to actually put a number on uh, some of the things like like road, acceptable number of road deaths, for instance? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so there are actually two different methods of coming up with sort of willingness to pay for human life. One of them is the quality-based one that's used mostly in health economics, as I just mentioned. But for things like road death um, willingness to accept, so you know, one of the fun, funny jokes about economists is we are, we are told by others that we are the only discipline that is willing to ask, well, how many dead babies are acceptable? Yes. And, and basically what that is, what that means is, you know, if we wanted zero dead people on the road, including babies, right, then we would have a what speed limit of five kilometers an hour everywhere. Right. So there is always a trade off. As soon as we start saying we want to get from place A to place B at a speed that a car can take us, but we can't get there on a bike. Right. Then we're saying we accept some degree of risk and that risk translates into human death you know, human death that will almost surely happen. We can, you know, kind of know that there's going to be mistakes on the road. There's there are going to be, you know, lives lost and injuries. And so for those kinds of um, determinations that society has to make, like what is the speed limit going to be? Sometimes the alternative approach that's used is the value of a statistical life. And the reason for this is that the standard person, you know, for a, a 20 years old or 30 years old or whatever, will often... Um, sort of have a particular amount of uh, earning power remaining that used to be the basis on which uh, juries and, and judges would decide on compensation for when they were injured in sort of workers' compensation claim cases and things like this. And based on that sort of calculus, there was a, a value that was come up with by actually Kip Viscusi and, and some other co-authors whom I interviewed on my radio program a few, uh, maybe a year ago or so now, um, that was the value of a statistical life. And that's uh, somewhere between two and $9 million, 
depends on what country you're in. And also, of course, it depends on uh, where you are in your life cycle. So if you're talking about somebody who's 80 years old or 85 years old, which is, you know, in that range is the average COVID death, then the value of the statistical life of that person is not that large an amount. It's not so many millions of dollars, which Kip Fiscuzzi actually discussed with me on, on my radio program because I asked about that. This is one of the challenges that we've had to, you know, how should you actually value a COVID death? What are you losing when you lose someone to COVID? On average, not, not everybody who dies from COVID is over 80, but on average, the person, the average person who dies from COVID is losing somewhere between three and five uh, sort of quality life years. And so that that is not very many compared to someone who would be younger, you know, 20 years old, 30 years old and has their whole life to live. And that means that, unfortunately, sadly, it's not that that's a good death. You know, we don't want anybody to die, of course. But if we don't recognize that an 85 year old dying is less of a tragedy than a 25 year old dying, then we we end up with social decisions which are horrific. And, and you can almost not say that anymore, Gigi. You, you, people are so outraged when you say that 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 a death at ninety is is not a tragedy. I I got uh, I once said that to one of my wife's friends. I said death at ninety is not not a tragedy, and she was horrified that that came out of my mouth. Horrified. I mean, again, I wouldn't say it that way. I would I would say it is still a tragedy. It's just less of a tragedy than the death of a twenty five year old, right? And if we don't admit that to ourselves, we're just you know we're putting our head in the sand. There are difficult trade offs to be made, and economics is the science where we're supposed to be able to make those trade offs with a cool head. And unfortunately, most of my profession has not done that during this period. It's been a great disappointment to me. Well, maybe we can uh, talk about suffering in another, come at it from another angle. So I've been describing what happened in Australia as a little bit like the, the Kennedy assassination, partly because it's harder and harder to ascertain the truth and, and what's happened, particularly now. Uh, but it's more the assassination of the hopes and dreams and opportunities of younger generations, of our new Australians. And people, I always think about the people who were just on the cusp of moving up a ladder and when this when this virus broke out i look at those towers in in melbourne that were locked down and i'm like oh my goodness i thought about those people what if you were just on the edge of getting out of there and, and into society and so i was teaching a group of students in the creative fields which we know is very competitive and at the time when they should have been outputting like crazy and socializing and building experiences they were sent home for second rate zoom lectures done by me and uh, uh in some cases with very unsupportive families and bad situations so you know success in our system it depends on getting your hands on the rung of a ladder early and i think these kids missed it or and, and even and sometimes it felt like it was kicked away by people who already may have achieved it so perhaps to what degree do you think class and, and generational factors played into this this uh this thing yeah, no, look, it's huge. So definitely the biggest costs during this period were paid by the young and the very old who actually were at risk of COVID, um, but were treated to some of the most inhumane, horrific sorts of policies and protocols that we've ever visited upon our elderly population. I mean, how many people have died alone during this period? Hmm. Yeah. How many people have died alone? That That is a horrible thing. Uh, and as you say, how many children and young people have had their dreams just wiped away and, and dropped out of school or just lost motivation or just, you know, just ran out of puff to keep trying and trying and trying in the face of a world that didn't seem to want them to succeed or to take any risks at all, which, of course, as we know, is part of youth. 
you know, the, the, the time in your life when you take risks is your youth. And for the rest of society to be saying you can't go to the playground because you might catch COVID and bring it home to your grandmother and kill her. I mean, what a horrible, horrible message to give. You're basically hijacking the person's love for their grandmother and telling them because of that, you can't have a normal young, young experience. I'm, I'm, I'm desperate. I'm desperate to give the boomers a whack. Can we give them a whack or? <laughs> yeah, it is, it is mainly the boom. I mean, oh, honestly. It's the Zoom class, the laptop class, anybody who felt like, oh, you know, I can isolate myself in my home and do my working from home, you know, and safely just pretend as though, you know, that's that's the way that everybody is able to live. I mean, there's a massive failure of empathy. I mean, I, I and speaking as somebody who was able to do that, right? I'm a university professor. I was able to basically just work online this whole time. And fortunately, I still have my job. I, I, and UNSW has not tried to muzzle me during this whole two-year period. I'm very thankful for that. No, they didn't exactly stand in front of the bullets too much. No, no, I, no, they didn't stand in front of many bullets. A little, I had a little peek at Twitter and uh, ew, I won't say they hung you out to dry, but uh... no, they didn't hang me out to dry. But I mean, they, they tried to distance themselves from my speech, but they definitely did not, uh, you know, call me. I didn't have any emails or calls saying, hey, watch it, lady. Right. And I certainly didn't get anybody <laughs> saying, you know, you, your, your time is nigh, you know, <laughs> pack your bag. Right? It could have been a lot worse. Right. That's all I'm saying. I mean, yes, I, I do believe very much that universities should not take a position on policies. So when the university tweeted, you know, the views of Gigi don't represent, you know, the views of UNSW, my thought was, well, why does UNSW have views? Right. That's that's the first question. Why do they have views? No, they should. They are a platform for others to uh, express views and have those views compete in the marketplace for ideas. That's what universities are about. Right. So I don't think that universities should make political donations. I don't think they should take political positions. I don't think they should have stands on on issues. Right. They are they are simply a platform for the people they employ to do the work of thought leadership. And, and that's, you know, that's what I feel like I've been trying to do. But anyway. So, so I've been very protected. And honestly, my family have been fine. I have two kids, both of whom are um, now in university. And, you know, so they could have gotten whacked around quite a lot. But fortunately, you know, my son was able to come home from overseas and spend 15 months in the home. And while he was here, he used his frustration to write a musical about the COVID era called Hive Minds, right? Great. So he's wow. got that now. He's sending it out. Hopefully that'll get somewhere. And my daughter was in year 12 during the 2020 period. And so that was a huge, you know, disaster in some ways. But again, she had a very supportive, loving family. You know, we all were, were sort of, again, sanity checking each other, providing support for each other. She came out with a great HR, you know, the high school uh, rank thing. And she's now in a dual degree program at UNSW. She's an introvert anyway. So she's quite happy to just take all her classes online. She moved out very successfully, like late last year. She still has a bit of a subsidy from us, but she's basically fine, right? The only thing that really has gotten held back from my kids is that they've not been able to meet people that they might want to partner with for life. And they both are keen to do that. And it's been hard to meet people, right? It's only been the online dating thing and, you know, everything is about COVID and who wants to come out, you know, it's just, it's, that's been a real uh, problem. So I think that probably is also another problem that we haven't really reckoned with is we've just kind of screwed up the, the, the mating market basically, right. For young people. And that may end up delaying the day of, uh, you know, year of first marriage and maybe then fertility and goodness knows what else. Um, certainly having the IVF clinics closed, will have, um, you know, had a dampener on, on, on late life fertility. Although in Australia, it does seem that there's a bit of a baby bump from the lockdowns, which actually I originally predicted. I said in March, 2020 to my co-author or co-host, I should say, Peter Martin on The Economist, I said, you know, Peter, I think there's gonna be a baby bump from this. Like there's gonna be a, a increase in fertility, just a brief one, because if people are stuck in their homes, what else are they gonna do? 
right? There's your partner, yeah. right? You're going to make babies. So, I, and it does seem to have happened, but in a lot of other countries, it hasn't. And actually there's been a significant decline in fertility, many other countries, including in Europe. So, um, so that's also a, a huge worry. And that of course propagates through generations as we know. Mm. Well, it wasn't a very sexy time to be honest with you, uh, Gigi. <laughs> indeed, indeed, that's right. So you really had to kind of delude yourself and just pretend like everything was okay. I don't know. You know people have amazing imaginations, you know. <laughs> well, if we, if we peek a little further into your book here, uh, you've observed three clear stages within the pandemic, uh, the great fear, the illusion of control and the end game. So uh, m maybe we could t take a little bit of time talking about the great fear. And, and early on in the pandemic, we didn't really know what we were dealing with. We didn't know much about this new virus or how transmissible it was, how lethal it was. Uh, what's your read on those early days and, and where did that fear come from? How did it spread? And was there a tipping point or a moment when you knew uh, we're not in Kansas anymore? Huh. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, I was very uh, over optimistic early in the pandemic that we would shed this fear very quickly. So even as late as May, I was still thinking, surely this is just going to recede. Right? And, and I think I just I, I vastly underestimated a the degree to which people were susceptible to their fears that they just hadn't just didn't have much courage, mental courage. And secondly, B, the crowd dynamic, which started to form uh, in May, you know, April, May, and really took on a life of its own. And that's that COVID crowd that has kept this whole thing going. And we have a whole chapter, as you know, on, on crowd psychology um, and crowds generally, which um, for me was the most interesting chapter to write, actually, because it is an, uh, sort of an area of human behavior that we just don't really study much anymore or teach in the social sciences. And it's really an area that we need to reckon with. You know, this is part of human nature. We can do this. And so for me personally, that was a real revelation. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have witnessed this up close as much as I would never have wished the COVID period on my worst enemy. Um, but, uh, you know, got to see the silver linings. For me, that's a silver lining. So this, this a great fear was the first few months of the of the pandemic and yes it was fueled by by the images by the messaging by people talking to each other about how, how dangerous this was but also by governments themselves um, not in every country but certainly in australia and in the uk as well now i actually did a paper about that, that kind of compared the messaging of four different governments including um, australia and also sweden and in sweden you see a much more uh, objective and kind of cool-headed approach by the government. So they they didn't exactly go out of their way to to reduce the fear, but they certainly did not fan it. Right. And what you see in Australia is some fanning of fear. And I have to say, uh, to my to my great shame, many people who helped the government to do that fanning in the most effective way possible were behavioral economists. Right. I've been called a behavioral economist very frequently because I study weird things like power and love and stuff like that. But I'm an economist. And so it was the behavioral nudge units in the UK, in the US, in, in Australia, who were often tapped for advice about, you know, how best do we scare people? You know, how best do we get people to just really feel like so threatened by this thing that they're willing to accept this incredibly draconian measure? You know, and to my mind, that is just totally unconscionable. And so I think behavioral economics has a lot to answer for and really should do some serious reflection after this period to, to recover their moral compass, because that, you know, you cannot just be the servant of an autocrat and think that that's okay, you know, and just say, oh, well, you know, my hands are clean because I was just doing what they told me to do. I mean, we've heard that kind of argument before, haven't we? So that's the great fear. Then after the great fear, you had this period that we, as you say, call the illusion of control. And that's when 
governments and many other bodies within countries started to believe that they could actually control the spread of this virus and they could control the deaths, they could control things, right? This is, a again, a very common human misperception is our degree of influence on the natural world, right? Oh my goodness, yes, we can, you know, what, what we do is going to influence very strongly what some respiratory virus, which has an animal reservoir, right, is going to do, is going to, you know, how it's going to pass amongst people and how many people it's going to kill and how bad it's going to be. When we've seen in the history, it's not human actions that that mainly stop the spread of these various viruses. It's other stuff that generally speaking, we don't understand that well, <laughs> right? And of course, some factors are, you can still tease out from the data. One of the factors was geography. So the fact that we are in Australia with uh, a lot of sunshine, reasonably, uh, you know, not sparse population, not particularly dense, um, and not many intergenerational households. And also in the Asian area where we would have been swept through by previous coronaviruses and may have some deep immunity. These are the kind of factors that I would expect to see in play, and if you look at the data, it looks like that's plausible, uh, that would actually influence the trajectory of the virus in Australia, far more than what you know whether you're wearing a mask to a supermarket, you know? Is this the data from the, at the time that they had at the time in, in the uh, sort of April, what is it, April, December, 2020? So I wouldn't say it was available in April. So we were still watching, you know, who, what, what fraction of people in each of the countries was going to succumb to this thing in April, May, June, July. Um, in August, the first wave had passed through a lot of countries. And so you started to be able to see a bit of a pattern uh, where it was the U.S. and um, the European countries that seemed to be hit worst and the Asian countries seemed to be hit least. And that continued to be the case, you know, into 2021, it was the Americas that really got hammered, you know, the new, the new world in America. And so that's the North and South and also some countries in Europe. Um, and, you know, Australia, of course, we haven't really, we didn't have alpha wave come through us and Delta was pretty mitigated as well because of the international border closures. We now have Omicron, you know, but it's much, much milder. And so uh, the number of deaths that we've now got is probably, you know, lower than we would have had if we had had the alpha variant come in. But again, it's not about just the number of deaths that you prevent, right? It's always a case of a trade-off. So the question is, how badly have we damaged ourselves? How much have we paid for saving, what, a few thousand deaths? And when I say saving the people, I mean, you know, gaining for each of those deaths averted, maybe three to five years of healthy life. Hmm. Well, in this illusion of control phase, the second phase, when the government was uh, compelled to do something, you know, we had everything. We got QR check-ins we got face masks it was like surgical masks then cloth masks then back to surgical now it's n95 curfew slogans trust the science follow the science stay home save lives uh, and uh i think this is ricky's favorite one staying apart keeps us together yeah so, so well. these wartime like press conferences you know uh, sort of murkily credentialed people like brett sutton you know sort of leading uh our leaders by the nose so you know what who was advising the government and in these measures? Like, like I don't understand. It was clearly not you. So I want to know how we got because they had they obviously had to have meetings about all of these slogans and they did the marketing and there was this paper. There must be who was advising them on all of this. Well, you know, I, I don't have inside information about that, unfortunately. I can tell you that from my experience in the Parliament's room in August 2020. I mean, it was by Zoom, but you know, from experience of the actual parliamentarians there their thinking was just completely at odds with what would be good for Australia because they had been 
I guess, you know, led to believe by people who were epidemiologists and health scientists that the only thing to focus on was COVID. So COVID deaths, COVID sickness, COVID, COVID, COVID was, it became health, synonymous with health for a while. And as soon as you are able to, you know, get someone who's in a decision-making position to just forget about everything else that matters in normal times and just zero in on one outcome, then, you know, you're, you're lost because that one outcome, as bad as it may be, um, you know, is not capturing all the other things, you know, the crowded out checking for cancer or the inability to get to a hospital if you have a heart attack or a stroke or the disrupted children's education. All those things kind of get swept under the carpet and we're just, oh yeah, we know it's difficult, but we have to because COVID. So I think what happened was, was A, that um, you know, there was all this fear and there was a, a, a demand to be protected. And so the politicians were looking for some way to, to be seen to be a protector. But B, there was just such a monovision in those halls of power. So people who, you know, like me, like, you know, anybody who disagreed with the idea that COVID is the only thing that should matter were simply not included in the decision-making process. So there were no psychologists who were talking about what about the, you know, mental health damage to people who are isolated during these lockdowns. There were no economists talking about, well, gee, what about, you know, the effects of stopping GDP for a while and we're getting off that trajectory we otherwise would have been on. And by the way, also the government debt from JobKeeper, we're gonna need to pay that back one day, Um, you know. sociologists who could talk about the dynamics of groups for heaven's sakes, you know, like maybe you guys are in the grip of a brainwashed situation here, right? We just didn't have that kind of diversity. So one of the big takeaways for me is that when you limit, you narrow your focus to just one image of what is okay to think, what is, you know, what's the okay perspective to have, and you disregard all the other perspectives and alternative belief systems that are present in your society, you become really stupid, really fast. And, and that's what happened in Australia. And we still have yet, as you'll know, to have an actual proper public reckoning and a, and a discussion between opposing camps about what we should have done during the pandemic. I've been pushing for that for a year, you know, and, and people have literally refused to be on the stage with me. People have refused to be my interlocutor in podcasts like this. Um, people who, you know, have been supporting lockdowns. And to me, that's just a huge red herring. I mean, I'm sorry, red flag, right? It's, it's sort of, well, if you can't, handle having an actual discussion about this, then that smells to me like you don't think you've got a good case that can actually be argued in a scientific way. So that's a bad signal, right? And and it's just, it's very, very damaging for the public, you know, the, the ability of the public to actually debate and discuss and, ha- and have open minds and, and consider different options and actually start using their brains again, rather than being led by this crowd, which developed in, you know, April or so, and has been dictating truth and morality to its members for a year and a half. Well, but maybe we could talk a little bit more about, about that crowd dynamic. Um... The, the COVID crisis spawned many conspiracy theories involving Big Pharma, Bill Gates, 5G mobile phone towers, uh, and, and the Davos jet setters. Uh, but you suggest that groupthink and the dynamics of crowds is the explanation for the longevity of the uh, popularity of restrictive measure, measures such as lockdowns and, and the emergence of authoritarian governments. Can you explain the crowd dynamic a little and, and give us a sense of 
how crowd mentality has had a detrimental effect? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as I, as I said to you, that this is really the most interesting part of the pandemic to me in, in a lot of ways. Um, as a social scientist who studies things like power and group influence. Um, so a crowd is, is one of these things that's been observed in history in the past. So if you think about, for example, the Salem witch hunts, that's a good, a good historical example to have in your mind. So what happened there? Well, there was some kind of fungus or something in the, uh, you know, I don't even know what the actual biological story is, but something started to cause girls to sort of behave weirdly. And this got interpreted by the society as meaning that they were possessed in some way. They were witches, you know, and, and therefore malevolent and they could do bad things and they were going to corrupt other people. So this whole story became, you know, sort of uh, part of the, the mythology of that period. And, uh, and then the society became focused very narrowly on identifying and doing away with the witches, right? And so huge amounts of, of social resource were poured into identifying identifying these, these poor women, um, you know, having them testify, having others testify against them, having these whole trials and everything, and then actually burning them at the stake, right? So, and, and this, this notion that somehow these, you know, nothing else about these women matter, the fact that they were daughters and sisters and mothers and, you know, valuable members of society who were producing things that the society needed, none of that stuff mattered. And no other explanation for this weird behavior was considered, which, you know, maybe it was because they didn't have the scientific understanding of it. But, you know, that kind of obsession, that is what characterizes a crowd. And so in the COVID period, we had this obsession with the COVID threat, right? Here we have this threat. And of course, for, for very valid reasons, the human mind is capable of being gripped by fear in such a way that everything else gets blocked out except the thing we fear, because that you know promotes our survival, right? So if you're being attacked by a you know lion, then you really don't want to be thinking about, gee, you know, does my hair look okay, right? You you, you want to be like, okay, I got to deal with the lion, right? So so you, so you have to do that for for good survival reasons. But in the COVID case, we forgot about you know many things that are actually much more important for human health and well-being than COVID. You know, maybe that's sacrilegious to say it, but there are many, many more things that are much more important for human health and well-being than COVID, right? And even, you know, preventing yourself from getting infected with COVID, right? And, and we just forgot about that. So what happened was this crowd developed around this and the crowd provides a sense of security and power to the people who belong to it, which is very seductive. This is one of the reasons why people allowed themselves to join this crowd. Essentially, you once you're in the crowd, you no longer have to really think about this threat and how, how dangerous it is. All you need to do is, is do whatever the sacrifice is that the crowd is demanding of you at that time, follow whatever the direction is that the crowd is pointing to. And that means in terms of what is true, what is not true, what is moral, what is not moral, you know, what is reasonable or acceptable and what is not acceptable. And, and so, you know, you basically can turn your mind off. So that's why, you know, when you actually confront the people who were in this crowd, because I've done, been doing this for two years, confront these people with actual scientific arguments, you know, and, and rational sort of, okay, well, here's the, here are the facts and here's what I think. And based on historical precedent, blah, 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 you try to have a rational conversation. It's like, it's like throwing spaghetti at Teflon. You, you can't get it to stick, right? They're just not able to engage because the mind is not operating anymore in that logical, critical thinking way. You just basically turned it off on in that sphere, in the sphere that has anything to do with COVID, right? Now, gradually, 
people, when they recover from crowds, often what it is is that they just realize something else is really important. So it could be, you know, a mother who's, who's, you know, young boy, let's say gets, you know, injected and has a myocarditis or something and realizes, wait a minute, hang on, this isn't right. And starts to, you know, kind of break free of the, of the mind control essentially. Right. And realize, okay, I need to uh, reevaluate and actually start using my mind again and, and use some of the critical thinking capacity that's been dormant for two years to consider the data that's in front of me. That's, that's often how people start to wake up, um, but it can last a very long time. And once a crowd is, is formed, it has an incentive. It almost takes on a life of its own to want to continue, to want to perpetuate itself. And so, you know, the next crowd thing might well be, you know, Ukraine and God knows what else. And maybe then Black Lives Matter again, or maybe climate change or whatever the thing BLM is. too. The sequel. Yeah, yeah too. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, well, Gigi, we, we I have a, an example here. So I think we, because we have this on 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 YouTube. So around April 2020, I think I saw the this this crowd dynamic in in uh, one of your appearances on on Q and A. So I'm not I'm not putting anyone on trial. I won't uh, name any names or or, or or dox anyone. But the heat between you and the audience was palpable. Um, and some of the other panelists on, on some of these shows, we had audible gasping. There was moral outrage from from uh, the uh, the commentator at the time. And you know, someone uh, said these comments, which I thought was was absolutely fascinating. This is one of the most fascinating documents. This particular episode, I've seen this. I've seen this. I've done a close reading of this. So, the job of governments is to make people's lives healthy, wealthier, happier. You cannot segment out one sector of the population and ask them to undergo great misery, suffering death in the interests, the spurious interests of saying all the rest of us will benefit. That is not how societies work. And it should not work in Australia. It can be, it can be discounted. The evidence is overwhelmingly clear. The, the debate, in my view, is finished. Close quote. Now he goes on to say, uh, talk about uh, uh, COVID. Uh, would you rather be in a COVID-free environment uh, or not? So uh, I thought this encapsulated uh, a sort of a pro-lockdown, zero-COVID crowd mentality. Um, and perhaps you weren't actually allowed to offer much of a counter to any of the things you said. Uh, 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 so perhaps you'd like to respond, to, you know, to some of the claims. <laughs> and the, but there are claims. There are serious claims made in this. The, the one that the debate the, the debate is finished that's that is that's one of the most chilling things i've mm. heard in a long time now uh so i mean what 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 do we think of these claims in in light of being a crowd and that that crowd mentality well, so the interesting thing to me, and I know who, who said these things, of course, I, I remember that episode very well. Um, the interesting thing to me is the ability to couch the defense of lockdowns in what seem to be unarguable terms. Right. It's very difficult to argue against for, for a broad audience to argue against the idea in general that it's wrong to punish one group of society in order to benefit another. Right. Uh, you know, how are you going to argue against that? Right. So he couches it. Or sorry, I should say he or she couches it in these terms that are basically, uh, you know, indefensible. Like you can't you can't attack that. Right. What what has to then. So it, so it, it shows you there the mechanism of, of how the crowd member works, what their mind does. It's not actual critical analysis. It is rationalization for what the crowd wants to believe. 
right? So what you, your mind becomes a rationalization machine. And of course, in, in normal times, it often is a rationalization machine, right? I mean, we, we rationalize all the time why we do things, but the scientific approach is to try as much as we can to take devil's advocate positions, to make, you know, conservative assumptions against what we actually gut instinct think, and, and then to let data speak and actually have these kinds of debates and discussions and consider all options, keep our minds open. We try to do all these things, even though we're fallible humans, as scientists, because that's, you know, what critical thinking is kind of all about and evaluation of evidence. But in a crowd, the crowd member, you know, knows what the crowd morality and what the crowd truth is, and then has at his disposal, I mean, the more experienced and the more educated, the more dangerous in some sense, because he has at his disposal this amazing weaponry, right, this whole armory of, of arguments and, and reasoning that can be brought to bear through various sleights of hand onto, you know, the justification of the crowd truth. And of course, the statement, well, the debate is over, that's just, a, just, you know, another embodiment of the whole cancel culture mentality, right, which has happened to me many, many times. I think I was uh, defamed on Twitter, and people have certainly tried to cancel me in many different forms. I, you know, I had some weird thing happen when I was in Alex Jones, the, you know, the, the YouTube video was taken down, I mean, all sorts of weird stuff. And I'm sure it's, you know, more of the same sort of uh, dynamic going do you on. Think, do you think that uh, emotion and emotive language and moral outrage were also some of the weapons used in as part of this crowd you know toolkit of course again any argument about we have to lock down because it's good for the health of the nation because we love our grandmothers right we because you know we care about australia invites the sort of implication that anybody who doesn't want lockdowns hates grandma you know doesn't care about australia and wants everybody to die right <laughs> Which is, which is why I got the label of the Trump cannot death cult warrior. Well, you know, if, if, you like, often, right? if you like Sweden so much, maybe you should just move there. Yeah. Maybe you should just move there. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I, know. I know, right? It's amazing. I tell you, Andrew Tegnell is a real hero in my mind, yeah. Gigi, are there, are there any people still advocating for zero COVID? Where are all these people? Where, where have they gone? Well, it's very interesting you ask. I, I don't keep tabs on those people, um, partly because I just, you know, I'm not a very gossipy person and I kind of don't really care. And, you know, I kind of feel like, okay, they're going to have to, they're going to face their own reckoning in their own time and it's going to be painful enough for them. And I'm not the kind of person to smear someone. I, I just, I've never done that. I don't want to ever do that. I just think it's, it's disrespectful and inappropriate. But at the same time, you know, I'm a little curious. I have seen a couple of people trying to start a new consulting firm um, and, and, you know, sort of sell their wares as people who care about Australia or something and they want to, you know, they're basically not focusing as much on COVID policy, trying to distract away and get into something else. Um, but there, you know, there are plenty of people who are just, you know, everyday Joes who may have gone along with the narrative a bit, but not been so public during the time and are now, again, just returning to their old you know, research that they that they used to do. I mean, I, I gave a talk in Brisbane a few weeks ago called COVID policy, science or religion. And it was full of behavioral economists. So I kind of got a good sampling of, you know, what do people in my field actually think? And I was there in person, which was really good. And it was very clear that there was the, the probably the modal reaction to my presentation, which was very impassioned and tried to make the case that this was not about science, this was a religious, basically a manipulation of people based on their religious tendencies to um, enact some of the most, you know, the most damaging policies we've seen in a generation that Australia will take years to recover from. Um, but the modal reaction was kind of a bemusement, kind of, oh, there she goes, yeah, haha, <laughs> yeah, oh, gosh. 
Huh, what a time. Whoops, you do. Let's have some coffee, right? It was literally like that. Right? Well, that video, uh, uh, these Q&A clips, I hope they stay online forever because, you know, that that one of you, uh, you know, standing as the only bulwark against uh, what was hysteria, in my view, uh, was truly inspiring, you know, and um, I, 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 I just think it was the best example. I mean, when most of us stood were silent and didn't put anything on the line, there you were. I mean, at a time when everyone broke their brains in 2020 and like you work at a, at a university and like you work at, you know, you don't have to say anything about this, but you do work at the ABC. And like a lot of these places, um, you know, they got their views and they don't like people who don't have them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting. I mean, you're right. And, and I guess I kind of, I'm lucky because for my whole life, I've not been bothered by the idea that some people would disagree with me. And sometimes I see that as a, as a fun thing. It's like, great. We have something to talk about, you know? And, and I, and I don't get my sense of self-worth out of, you know, how much people approve of me or, or something like that. Right. It, it's, I'm just, I was raised by very strong parents who gave me a rock solid sense of self-esteem. And I was a lonely child actually, cause I was an only child. And, and I kind of stood apart from the kids at school a lot of the time I was always a teacher's pet and I sort of observed them almost as you would observe an amoeba under a microscope, you know? So I think I started to adopt that habit of seeing humanity almost from a, from an arm's length. Um, and so not, not thinking that, well, what they think really matters to my well-being. It's like, well, no, I, I want the best for them. But if they think I'm wrong, well, if I think I'm right, I'm going to still say it. Right? So I, I was lucky to be able to have that psychology going into this. And also, of course, to have studied for a decade before COVID broke out, things like power and loyalty and group influence and networks, things that are incredibly important to understand if you want to understand what's happened during COVID. Mm. Well, we, we are getting close to the end of our interview here, Gigi, uh, but I feel like we haven't haven't properly talked about the, the, the cost, like the large cost in terms of human, social and psychological uh, cost because of lockdowns, you know, because I know uh, I know friends and acquaintances of mine are going to are still going to have that that lockdown meant. Oh well, it was worth it to you know it was just worth it to 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 save lives and 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 to help flatten that curve. Flatten you know, the curve. Uh, we just need to get uh, to the vaccines. Um, but what about long COVID? All of all of it. Yes. Like the, you know. So what what would you say to those people that are still going? Oh well, it was worth it. Well, I would say, first of all, um, have a look at the literature, which is increasingly coming out, proving that it wasn't worth it. And secondly, my hope is that within five years, Australia will get to a place where we will have a national moment of silence every year for the victims of the COVID panic, because that's what they deserve and and nothing less. And, And I certainly do expect we'll have the kinds of Protocols like the, a royal commission and whatnot that uh, you know Australia is likely to have. I would hope for a truth commission that would actually do something. But at the very least, a moment of silence would be appropriate in my view. Um, and and the enormity of what's been lost is illustrated in the book. Um, and I'm also, as I say, working on a cost-benefit analysis right now, which will be released in uh, hopefully in another few weeks. So if people really want to see the damage that we've caused, our best estimates of the damage we've caused, that will be available in the public record, um, you know, for for history to peruse. Well, maybe maybe a second last question here, Gigi. Uh, both John and I, we, we herald from Western Australia, and we have we have an eye on what they're doing over there. Uh, WA was the last Australian state to open up their borders and let the virus in. I believe they did that just last week. Um, 
We've already seen heartless panic policies such as a terminally ill mother of five not being allowed to see her children for fear of spreading COVID around the hospital. Uh, do you have any thoughts on why the, the West Australian government uh, hasn't learned anything from other Australian states and are panicking like Victoria and Queensland did almost two years ago? Sure, it's political. I mean, during this whole period, the main, main lesson is that what was sold as health was politics and tyranny. And in fact, the more isolated you are able to make yourself, whether that's Australia as a whole or Western Australia, the worse it was for the potential of politicians to actually toe that line, to actually claim erroneously that they were protecting you from this massive health decline, when in fact, their policies were inflicting health damage. And I've had people as well from from Western Australia expressing, you know, amazement that we haven't all dropped dead here in the eastern states, you know, because supposedly there's this plague, right? And and it just shows you the extent to which even without the kind of, you know, clampdown on the media that you're seeing now, for example, in Russia, right, um, people can just be led astray. So I would say, you know, if you want to escape this kind of dynamic in the future, stop reading the same things every day. Stop talking to the same people every day. Read widely. You know, I read the New York Times and the Epic Times and Harper's Magazine and The Economist. I read, I read lots of stuff every day because you have to keep yourself open. You've got to keep yourself thinking. You've got to challenge yourself. If you cannot defend your beliefs based on actual data or, or you know, reasonable, rational thought and to people who disagree with you, then maybe you should reevaluate those beliefs for the sake of the country, because otherwise you're just a person waiting to be led by the nose down the next horrific path that the politician who realizes they can get away with it and are being asked to provide, in fact, will do. And, and that's what's happened during this period. People have clamored for more and more lockdowns, more and more abuse of authority. And we've got to wake up from that and stop being the sheep that, that Australia has proven itself basically to consist of during this period and start taking responsibility for you know, a healthy and open and dynamic society. Well, I don't think we can really top that. But I think it's, it's, it's about, do you think it's about people you know, stealing themselves and standing up and saying something? Yeah, you, you, I mean, a society doesn't run on its own. And if, if people are just apathetic and they say to themselves, well, you know, I'm not going to bother following, you know, the news headlines or what's really happening and the economy or politics. I'm just going to, you know, worry about whether I have enough gas for the next weekend barbecue, right? Which is kind of the Australian attitude, a bit of apathy. Then you're going to end up with, with some people who recognize the opportunity, you know, James, to basically defraud the public and get a lot of power for themselves and just run away on, on the gravy train of Australia's richness. Um, and, and they are going to take control and they are going to do very bad things. And we know power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Right. Power corrupts. We need more studies in social science of power, which I'm doing myself, but I call more people to please do that. We need to know about power. We need to know the dynamics of power, how people are influenced by it, what happens when they get it, how to minimize the damage of power, which is a poison chalice to people, even though we want it so much. And, and we have to take responsibility ourselves for building institutions that are going to be robust and, and resistant to this kind of dynamic in the future. And that's a, that's a, you know, project that's going to take years. So I just encourage everybody to stop being apathetic, speak out and make your voices heard and, and put your, you know, your hands to the wheel because we need everybody working on this. Wonderful. Well, just a selfish question. We love to know what people are reading. Uh, what are you reading right now? <laughs> uh, I'm reading The Fiery Cross of Union by William Coleman, which is a, a, a retelling of the history of Australian Federation. And I'm reading um, Bodies of the South by Archie McLean, which is a piece of fiction. Wonderful. Would you, would you recommend we give a copy of your book to the Janes in our life? 
Look, it's dangerous. Um, I've, I've I've given the cop a copy to a couple James, and generally speaking, they don't engage. It is like the Teflon experience, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, you, you got to start the conversation somewhere, and maybe you could have a little reading group, and you could just sort of gently ease them in. Um, hey, Ricky, certain, Ricky, you should put it in your wife's uh, book club. I should. Yeah, she she has a few Janes in that book club. Actually, it would be fistfights. Yep. Absolute fistfights. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but why be in a book club? I mean, you know, fistfights are part of the reason to join. Well, oh, they just like the wine and cheese, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Well, Gigi, thank you so much for being, you know, so candid and giving and you're generous with your time. Uh, and we just this is I've just this is everything I've wanted to hear the last two years. Yeah, yeah. That, that's very sure. sweet, and it's really my great pleasure to to be on these sorts of shows. And I hope that it helps people who are listening. And, and please spread the word, and just let's have a return to sanity and uh, and and love and freedom and joy, right? Which is what mm. makes life worth living. Amen. Well, if people are interested, they can purchase your book uh, through Amazon. Uh, it's on Kindle as well. That's the version that I read. So it's out there. Uh, we recommend everyone grab a copy. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Gigi.